Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us to study it, help us to understand it, and help us above all to hear your voice in the middle of it. Um, speak to us, transform us, and lead this class. Help us to have a good discussion and learn a lot about you and see you. In your name we pray. Amen. Cool. All right, so just as like brief review, uh, since we have never made it through anything like we're trying to make it through, we'll review very quickly. Um, each week we've said that there are three big ideas to studying and reading the Bible. And so I just want to like emphasize them again, because if we forget them, then we'll be, um, we'll be in a bad spot. So first one is simply this. The Bible is both a human word and a divine word. Um, meaning that... Yay! Um, meaning that as we study scripture, we have to understand there's a human voice. And so we have to do work to understand the human voice. Um, they live in a specific context, in a specific age, and they speak a specific language. And so if we want to properly respect that person, we need to study it. Um, N.T. Wright, who is a, a biblical scholar, he often talks about this, and I, I thought it was really brilliant, as a, applying Jesus' golden rule, so love others as you want to be loved, to the study of Scripture. So if you want to love the writer of Scripture like you want to be loved, then you have to respect what they're trying to say, you have to inspect, respect the intentions of what they're trying to say, and not try to read your own ideas or hopes into that person's story. You have to respect them and love them as they are. So he always calls it a hermeneutic of love. Um, but then the Bible is also a divine word. So God is speaking through Scripture. And so the chief thing that we're trying to do is figure out what is it that God is saying. Um, number two, the Bible is a unified story about God and his mission to bring his kingdom. And so we've seen this begin to develop. I mean, we've spent, first week was Genesis 1 and 2. So we're like setting the stage. What's good? Who are the characters? What's happening in the story? Why is it happening? Genesis 3, last week, Genesis 3 through 5 is the beginning of the move away from God's intention. So we have the fall. We have um, humans wielding power outside of covenant responsibility. We have all of those things. And it begins to ask these big questions about like, hey, the, the heaven and earth are separated. Injustice rules. People are wielding power in ways that are um, detrimental and dangerous. And so what is God going to do about it? And now this statement makes sense. Oh, God is on a mission to bring his kingdom which is the unifying of the spaces of bringing his goodness and his reign into this world. Uh, and then finally, context is king. So when we look at texts, we look at stories, we look at moments, we have to put them into their context, both narratively and historically. So there's a, they have a place in the story. Um, Abraham does not know what comes after Abraham. So like, and this, I think this is important because we'll talk about this a little bit today. Abraham whole life will be kind of like a journey of learning who the creator is. And so you have all these moments where it's like, why doesn't Abraham know these things? Or why doesn't Abraham understand these things? You're like, oh, wait, wait, he doesn't have anything. He doesn't have Torah. He doesn't have previous revelation. He doesn't have prophets to go off of. He doesn't have previous family stories. So every moment in his life where he, like, doubts the creator or has to learn something that should be obvious, it's because they're not obvious yet. He's just learning those things. Like the story of Isaac. Um, Abraham lives in a world where child sacrifice was really common. And so it makes sense that as uh, a deity would ask you to sacrifice your child. Like that's a totally common um, request in that world. And so it's, it's not intuitively obvious to Abraham that the creator would have some other intention there or some other lesson there or would want to teach him something. You know, it's like he has to learn that for the first time. We know because Abraham didn't really. So context is king. So we always have to remember what the context is. And then over the last couple of weeks we've seen... Um, uh, big story ideas that have come from the text. Um, I'll just rip through these real fast. Um, so in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God is a good and powerful creator who invades the wild ways to bring life and light and make a beautiful home. So if we're looking at Genesis 1, we're saying, what is it about? This is what it's about. It's not about creationism versus evolution. 
It's not about modern science. It cannot be. It's too early for that. This is what it's about. Um, we learned that there are these characters in the story, image bearers, us, who are royal representatives of the great God with a mission to reflect him to the world by being like him in the world. So we talked about priests. We talked about stewards. We talked about um, humans have been commissioned with a task to take the world around them and make something of it. Um, so that's that. And then heaven and earth are one shared space. There's not two domains of existence at this moment in the story, of, at least in Genesis 1 and 2. There's one unified space. God lives with his people. Earth is the cosmic temple um, until Genesis 3 through 5. When heaven and earth are divided, uh, humans say they want their inheritance, they want it without God, and God respects that decision. Um, the power of evil has been unleashed in the world through human sin, um, and there's a fracturing of our relationship with God, each other, and our mission or our commission in the world, which is to make something of it. And so now the, the works of our hands, the relationships that we have with people and our relationship with God, those things are um, twisted and turned. So those are all the things we have covered in the last couple of weeks. Don't look at that yet. It's too soon. So now um, we come to a super famous story. Uh, everybody knows it. And that's in Genesis chapter 6, looking at the flood. Uh, I'm just going to read you the first couple of verses, um, and we'll talk about it. So this is how Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 starts. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Um, for he is flesh, his days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore them children. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Um, great. Rock monsters. <laughs> Rock monsters, yes. Have you seen, have you seen the Noah movie? Um, Nephilim are rock monsters. I've not seen the movie, so I actually can't speak to this truth at all. Um, huh? Well, I have a Hulu. Nice. So. That brings up a good point, though. So, historically, when we have looked at this moment, I just think it's so funny. I can't help it. When we've looked at this moment historically, like if you read old um, theology textbooks, or you read old uh, biblical studies books, the question about why does the flood come, right, which is a natural question, always comes to this piece of Nephilim. And the, the historic understanding of that has been um, that Nephilim, are some form um, of, like, they're the product of fallen angels mating with human women. And so then this hybrid combination together produces Nephilim, which are then um, tracked to be giants or, um, uh, this is a text, mighty men, and so they become, like, extra powerful people um, who are like, you know, raging on the earth and God's like, no, that's awful. And so then he sends the flood because Nephilim can't exist. Now there's a problem with that just narratively. Um, the phrase Nephilim is going to be used again um, when Israel is entering into the promised land. And so if God is sending the flood to wipe out Nephilim, he does an awful job because they still exist. Uh, and so it doesn't solve the problem at all. So then we have to ask a larger question of why do something so terribly? Um, I think 
that if we read the text that way, we're missing whatever is actually meant to be um, said. I like the idea of Nephilim existing, um, <laughs> but I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it makes sense narratively. Um, and I don't think it makes sense narratively because of this, because Genesis 3 through 5 has been about what? Well, it's been about the spiral and spread of human sin. It's all been about what happens when humans wield power outside of the covenant confines that God has set for them. Right? That's, that's the, the entire text has been that way. So what happens when, God, when humans reject God? And what happens when humans take their intense power and use it in ways that are not in line with God's covenant? How do they, what happens when they treat women that way? What happens when they treat the earth that way? What happens when they treat um, competitors that way? It's all been about how they wield power and what their own sin looks like when it's um, unleashed into the world. So it feels odd if you are writing the story to say human sin, human sin, human sin. Oh yeah, angels. Like it doesn't actually make narrative sense. Um, but the other thing that makes it confusing is I think what the text says um, which is this first moment. It says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Um, so the sons of God, that's a piece that they're always connecting to angels. And that's possible. But I think there's actually a more common... Uh, that term is used more commonly of another group of people. Um, can you think of anyone who would be described as a son of God in ancient culture? Pharaohs. Yeah, yeah. So to- totally Adam, um, which is what makes the biblical narrative so interesting compared to the mythologies of the other cultures. Because in um, the Bible, everybody gets to be an image bearer, right? Like all humans are image bearers. But as Carly just pointed out, I don't know what this graph is supposed to be. So I know you're looking at it. <laughs> Only uh, all peoples. This is the Bible. This is taking a little more time. Um, and then in like in Egypt or um, Babylon or Canaan, who would have been called the sons of God? And Carla mentioned it. You have one example of Pharaoh. So it would have been royalty. Um, and you see it, you don't just see it in the ancient world too. You see it, I know it's about wrong. <laughs> I knew it as soon as I did it, I was like, I'm just going to leave it. Um, you see it not just in the ancient world, you see it in, uh, like, think about, uh, like, monarchy, the monarchy in England. People believed their, their appointment to rule was divine. So if you are royalty in the ancient world, you uniquely believe that you are a son of God, or that you're in a unique relationship with God, or you're a unique representative of God. That's what separates the Bible so often from. Um, the narratives of the world around it because the Bible says everybody's made in the image of God. Everybody's a royal representative. Ancient world would say, no, no, no. Only the powerful are royal representatives. So you have this elite class of power. That's, I think, the first thing that people are going to come to, that is going to come into their mind as soon as they hear sons of God. You're an ancient person. You hear sons of God. Or you're kings, princes, dukes, royalty. And what is it that the kings and princes and royalty do? Well, it says in 6, 1, or 6, 2, it says, The sons of God, royalty, saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And so we learned in Genesis three sixteen that one of the consequences of the fall 
is that the relationship that exists between men and women is distorted. And how is it distorted? Well, the way I understood Genesis 3.16 is that men wield power in a way that tends to dominate women. And that's historically been true. Men always hold more power and privilege than women do. And so I think as we come to this moment, what we're seeing is that played out. That the royalty see that the daughters of men are attractive. They wield their power and they take as they choose. Um, Scholar John Walton believes that the very specific sin that's being thought of is actually prima nocta. um, Which if you've seen Braveheart, Edward the Longshanks enacts prima nocta. So that the royalty of Scotland, the English royalty who is ruling in Scotland, have the rights of first night with a newly married bride in Scotland. So it means they have sexual rights to a new bride. Uh, and that's what John Walton suggests is maybe being played out here, that royalty gets first rights to a new bride um, in the ancient world. So they're wielding power um, for their own gain, and they're taking as they choose. Um, and then when you come to the phrase Nephilim, um, I think the larger context of Scripture actually would just say that they are exactly what the text says. They are mighty men. Um, they are these, these people who wield power. Um, so then you come into the, because you, you come into the promised land, and they're like, oh, look, there's Nephilim. So there's people wielding power. There's strong men. There's armed men. There's armies of people. This is why the spies are so nervous when they come into the, the promised land. Um, it's because there's people wielding power, um, and they are known for it, um, like royalty would be, um, or powerful men would be. Uh, so yeah so I would say that Genesis 6 is more than anything else it's not an example of like weird mythology it's an example of just what we see a lot um, misuse human power broken systems so do you think that was part of this maybe jump ahead so maybe I don't want to get into it but like in numbers when you know they do see the Nephilim mm. in, in the land mm-hmm. maybe that's one of the reasons they get so freaked out is they thought like they go back to like the flood and they thought this really like pissed God off first time around and caused the flood like oh maybe part of their fear was kind of god's wrath in in that i don't know i'm just um kind of thinking i think you're right no i think you're you're, you're thinking back to history and thinking, yeah like we don't really want to play with fire yeah i think you're probably right there, there is there is some kind of narrative reference for them to like go back to and so they probably think about it they probably think uh, if they're afraid of it i would imagine they're afraid because um it took God's intervention to deal with this, like, misuse of power. And so they're probably nervous about them. them because the Israelites are always underestimating their own ability. Yeah. Right? Well, they're always underestimating. I should say they're always underestimating God's ability through them. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's probably totally true. So you have, and I think that's, that's what you would see lots of times if you see, you know, Canaan is always described as they have sophisticated military technologies. Israel doesn't. They have uh, trained armies. Israel doesn't. And so you're, like, looking like, oh, this is... This is a group of mighty men, and that's that's terrifying for a group who had been slaves for 400 years and then wandered in the wilderness for 40. Like you're like we don't we have we have shovels, you know. <laughs> subsisting on manna. <laughs> yeah, we've been subsisting on some weird unknowable food item. We're very, very malnourished. <laughs> so the flood is to wipe out, in theory, the powerful people who are trying to suppress. Noah's people, and I wouldn't say Noah's people. I don't think I would just say you have dyna- you have dynamic, dynamics of leadership and power that is being um, wielded amiss, and uh, God is intervening to deal with that situation. And we like to think of it as like encompassing the whole world, but like China and other places, 
So, we live through this experience. I would not say that it's encompassing the whole world. Oh. Um, which is a great point. <laughs> that leads us to the next idea. Um, oh, it's nothing up there. Um, yeah, so that's a great point. So then so you have that question of where, how large is the flood? Because that actually really changes the dynamic. Because you're saying, like, like, God is mad about this specific moment. At least it seems like he's mad about this specific moment that's happening in this place. And then also now he's, like, dealing with this whole thing. But the language that's used in the text is the same language that we saw in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, to describe land. And as we saw in that moment, Israel, or the people of the ancient world, like we, so we hear, we hear earth, and we think the entire thing. Um, but if you're an ancient people group, lar- like far beyond an understanding of a circular globe, far before um, people have from your group have traveled around it far before, um, I mean, pictures of the globe, which are coming in 1940, far before any of those things, your conception is not going to be this. You can't think beyond what you see, really. And so their perception of the universe is going to be just this. Like, there's some mountains here. There's probably some mountains here. We live here. That's the world. That's the land. And the text is actually, this is the land, the whole land. And so I would suggest that... um, the flood is a land issue um, or a known world issue, you could even say. Because to Noah, this is the known world. Because remember, actually, too, we talked about their cosmology. Hebrews believe that the universe looks more like this. This is a very confusing image. Um, that these are, these are mountains. This is the dome of the earth. Above here is water. That's why it's blue. And so the, the earth, like the dome of the earth up here is water and then there's the gods and it's held by these mountains. And so this is like, this is their whole conception of the universe. And then the world also rests on the pillars and foundations of the world and Leviathan is down here. So this is like, this is how they understand the world. So they may even think of a global flood, but what to them is a global flood? Well, this is a global flood. They're known world. They don't know anything beyond that. You know, they actually won't know anything beyond that for quite some time um, in the history of human development. This is all they can think about. Um, yeah, so I would say it's a known, it's a known um, world issue. Um, so yeah, so in that, so God intervenes in the situation, um, and I think that so the other thing that's hard about this moment is um, we ask why, like why does God have to intervene? But I think if you're in the world, there's always two interesting places to be um, when you're thinking about judgment. Um, there's before judgment and there's after judgment. I think after judgment, we always ask why. I think before judgment, we always ask why so long. Um, and I think that's true of most things. I think like if you live in occupied France before World War II, you ask, why did it take the Allied nations so long to invade in D-Day? Um, why did it take them so long to stop the horrors of the Holocaust? Why did it take them so long to stop the evils of Nazism? You live on the other side of that, though, and it's way easier to ask a question about, um, was the toll of D-Day necessary? Um, and so I think that there's an interesting moment that we can live on. I do think, though, that if you live in the world of Genesis 6 pre this moment, the question you're asking is why, why wait? Why does God wait to intervene in injustice? Why does he wait to deal with suffering? Why does he wait to deal with pain? And I think that the best way to understand the flood is to say that it's not some kind of vindictive or angry action, but it's a use of power to supplant systems of violence like D-Day is to World War II. Um, which is also important to note is because... If we're looking at, so we've said throughout this class that um, Genesis, especially Genesis 1 through 11, is in conversation 
with the narratives and worldviews of the world around it. So specifically Babylonian mythologies, Canaanite mythologies. Both of those have flood stories. Um, so that's super helpful to understand or super important to understand because the reason those flood stories exist is always because of the vindictiveness of the gods. Um, so the gods intervene because they're just annoyed or the gods intervene or the flood happens because the gods are at war amongst themselves. Um, and so you have this picture of like the ancient world is totally aware that a flood can happen. They're totally aware that gods can do um, judgment. They believe like this worldview believes that gods can be vindictive. They can be um, punitive. We've already seen that the creation of the world always comes out of violence. Humans are created because of slaves in this worldview. So the flood is just like it's just one of those vindictive fickle actions by the gods. But the Bible says, um, so you know there's a flood story, and you know there's a flood account, but it's not because of the gods are chaotic or because the gods are vindictive. No, no, it's because the creator God of the universe cares deeply about injustice because he cares deeply about the plight of the vulnerable and the the plight of the suffering, and he cares deeply about the the shalom or the peace of his world. Um, And so that's why he intervenes in injustice and suffering in the midst of the world. Uh, no, sorry. Oh, I, I was adjusting the last Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this moment is, um, so the flood, in a sense, narratively, is God pressing, it's in a sense, God pressing reset on creation. And as you're reading it, when you go through it, it begins, like, so 6, 8, and 9, it begins to fit really parallel with Genesis 1 and 2. Um, so you have the flood happen, and then all of a sudden you're kind of in this Genesis 1 moment where you have this like formlessness over the earth. And then, like in Genesis 1-2, Genesis 8-1, the Spirit of God is present over the surface of the deep. And then God forges from that place a people, Noah. In Genesis 9, he, re, he reinstitutes the blessing of Genesis 1. He reaffirms the covenant. He reaffirms that Noah is an image bearer. He reaffirms that Noah has a job in the world. And then God covenants with the world in this really unique way that I will not um, flood it again, that I will not cease to bring blessing, I will not abandon it, that I will protect it, and I will ensure its survival. And in that doing so, he's giving hope for the future renewal of the world, that we know that God's committed to his place. Um, That doesn't mean he won't judge the world. Because to be truly committed to the world, he also has to be committed to removing suffering, injustice, human evil, putting a stamp to how far um, our wielding of power can go outside of um, his constraints. So in that sense, um, you'll hear this sometimes, Noah is in a sense a new Adam. Um, And better than that, he points us towards the future Adam. Noah points us towards Jesus, somebody who is covenanted with, on behalf of the whole world. Noah plays as a single representative for the sake of the entire world. And Jesus will, again, also play as a single representative getting into God's covenant as a representative for all people groups. So he's just like really, like we had in Genesis 3, we didn't talk about it much, but in Genesis 3, you have a picture of the coming Messiah. Um, In Genesis 9, you get this picture of the coming Messiah. You're getting these like pictures of like, okay, God is moving to save. He's moving to rescue. And then there's these big hints too that like there's a a really big work that's happening as well, Uh, which is cool. Um, So from Genesis 9, you come into um, Genesis 10, which is the beloved genealogy that we all really love reading. Um, And 
Again, like we looked at last week, genealogies represent a change in chapter. It's like a new chapter in the story. So like, hey, what became of, what became of Noah and his family? And this one is interesting because it's called the Table of Nations. And so it's just like it just it goes on for a long time. Um, and it begins to track like what happened to the people. Um, and that leads into Genesis 11, which is the final kind of like, oh, yeah. Can I ask a question about something you kind of skipped over? Oh, yeah. yeah. That when Noah curses his son. Oh, yeah. Why was he so mad? That is a that is an amazing question. I'm glad that you you brought it up. Okay. You also glossed over the two of every animal, which is yeah, far less so impressive excited. with this context. Yes. And let's get the two goats on the boat and get out of here. So I think <laughs> yes, it is far less impressive, which I think is kind of like I think that so like like if the flood is global, like and it's global in the way we think about it being global. You have some, like, really serious issues. Um, y- you have to deal with that moment. Like, they're... Yeah, you just have to deal with some weird crap. Um, and I'm, if it's the Young Earth view of that there were dinosaurs on board. Yeah, double weird. That ship got some. Double weird. <laughs> yes. So this is why I think that, like... This is why it's so important that we spend a lot of time in Genesis 1 through 11. Because you just have to keep... I just think there's so many, like... We, we bring so much baggage to the text. Now, I don't, and then we have to, like, remove all that baggage to try to, like, get to the truth of it. Or, like, if... I think that what we've done for a long time in modern Christianity is we have said, like, here's all the baggage. Here's the things that we think the text needs to address. And this is we're going to deal with it. We're going to figure out ways to deal with it. So we're going to figure out scientific proofs for a young Earth crea- for a young Earth world, and we're going to find out different dating systems, and we're going to find out different ways to, to, to prove that. And then we're going to go to the flood moment. We're going to find out ways to prove that, and we're going we're gonna to say that there's evidence of catastrophe all over the world, and so therefore it's, it's, pr- it's true. But you just... You've dealt with a lot. Now, I don't think... I should say, that's not a reason to reject the text. So in my mind, um, the text has, at least for this, for this purpose, the text stands above all of those things, right? Like, there's, there's all of these, like, like, what about dinosaurs? What about the flood? What about, I don't know, or how long people lived? Um, and so then we can, we, can, we can either take these things and make them stand in authority over the text, and then make the text change, um, which I don't think is helpful, or we can look at the text and let that be an authority, but bring these things and make them necessary, and then we have to change the text. What I'm suggesting that we do in this class is that we just we've brought a lot of things to the text that don't need to be there, um, that weren't there for the original reader, that weren't there for the original audience, um, that could, some of those things that couldn't have been there. Um, and when we begin to process through those things and look at the text as it was meant to, through the, the hermeneutic of love, respecting the author as, it, as he or she should be respected. What we find is that just a lot of these things become non-issues. They're just not there because we read them in in our modern world and made them important. And the, Bible, the biblical writer, if he could have a conversation with us today, would be like, how do you care about these things? I never said anything about those ideas. Um, oh, yeah, and then um, Shem, Shem, Shem and Ham. Shim and him. I will. Right like, ah. Yeah, no, I got distracted by Chris. Yeah, this is this is Chris's fault. Um, um, all right, so let's see. Here we're going. Um, um, so you have. Okay, here we go. Uh, so this is nine. This is Genesis nine, um, and the story goes from eighteen to verse twenty-nine. 
Um, he has some interesting moments in 9. I really encourage you to read Genesis 9. Um, like, at the beginning of Genesis 9, um, Noah's not eating meat until Genesis 9, which I think is actually really fascinating. So I remember um, people getting really mad at the Noah movie because a big part of the plot is that, like, eating meat was evil. Um, and I remember, like, friends of mine being like, that's not in the Bible anywhere. And I've been like, well, actually, like, they're not super far off if you look at Genesis 9. Like, they're not eating meat until Genesis 9. And God's like, okay, now it's cool to eat meat. Hey! Um, okay, so in Genesis 9, verse 20, looking at that weird moment, um, let's go to verse, we'll go to verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their fathers. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Um, so there's a lot of... The moment is really obscure because like it doesn't... Um, the text doesn't specifically answer it for us. Um, however, I think that the best way to understand this... Um, is often, if you're reading Torah, the larger law books of the Bible, um, uncovering nakedness or the nakedness of the Father um, almost always is some kind of reference to um, some kind of sexual act. Um, Almost always. Um, And often, um, fathers are because they are in the ancient world, because they're head of the households, uncovering the father's nakedness could also be a reference to um, Shem having some kind of weird relationship with his mother. Um, so these are just these are like a little bit of conjectures um, based upon other moments in the text, because the text doesn't actually say. Uh, it just says that he uncovered the sin of his or uncovered the nakedness of his father. Um, but I think that if we like if we kind of piece together where, how that phrase like the nakedness of the person. Um, oh, here, here we go. This is the example I was looking at. Leviticus eighteen seventeen specifically forbid uncovering the nakedness of a sister because they are relatives and it is depravity. And so the the, the reference there is being that incest is gross and it's a sin. Um, and so if we take that context to indi- to talk about this moment here, um, it's that there is some kind of most likely um, sexual sin being committed against either Noah or his wife. Um, by his son, um, which is why he gets so angry. Yeah, 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 and it's way weirder. Um, you know, people are weird. Like not just cursed him. Yeah, I curse you, and also stoned in the head. Fair point. That wasn't as poetic. Yeah, no, fair point. Um, <laughs> so, um, in answer to your question, that's what I would believe. That's um, so. If, you, if you're looking for resources, I actually brought it in here um, on Genesis one uh, through, well, just Genesis in general. This is a really marvelous commentary. Um, it's the new, the NIV Application Commentary by John Walton. Um, it's, if, if you like, I really want to nerd out. This is a great way to do it. Um, John Walton is he's there's probably not a more premier scholar on Genesis literature in general he also wrote another book called The Lost World of Genesis um, 1 and 2 which we'll talk about um, the Genesis 1 and 2 creation narratives and it's very that one is very accessible um, 
he just came out with a new one called The Lost World of Adam and Eve, which specifically focuses on um, Adam and Eve. And then he has another one called The Lost World of Scripture. I think it's just called The Lost World of Scripture, and, and it's doing a lot of what we're doing in this class. It's kind of like, how do you, how do you get away from um, Western ways of thinking about Scripture and enter into the text that it was meant to be? So John Wallen, um, super helpful. Lots of, lots of really good material. If you're like, I want to nerd out way hard. Um, <laughs> which I'm hoping you do. Um, okay, so that's the flood. We looked at that. Um, we have one more big story to look at, which I think actually really informs the rest of um, Scripture. So I, all of Genesis 1 through 11 is that way for me. Um, but it's the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, and as you see in Genesis 10, that's the genealogy, the people are growing, and then they're gathering together um, to build a tower. And it makes sense. Like if you if you just look at it historically, um, it's really easy to heap accusations on the people of Babel and be like, "Your city building project is bad." Um, but if you live in the ancient world, you're a migrant in this valley called Shinar. Um, your life would have been really hard. Your whole existence is based upon your ability to forage, your ability to shepherd, your ability to um, preserve yourself. And your one really mistake or bad happening. From disaster, right? You're one moment away from brigands attacking you. You're one moment. I mean, just look at Abraham or Jacob or Isaac. Like, they're kind of there's always like a nervousness to their existence until they start to really flourish because drought can ruin them, like it does with Jacob. And they have to go to Egypt, or um, the loss of a son can ruin you. And so you, your life is really difficult. And so the people of Shinar, I think, noticing that the life is difficult, um, decide to unite, um, like we do in any kind of difficult situation. Um, and put together their cultural making skills, the advanced technology of the day, which is brick and mortar, um, and build a city so they can protect themselves, so they can find some kind of like relief amongst the wild, so they can find unity together, and so they can make a name for themselves. Which, again, would totally make sense if, you're, if your whole life is marked by repetitive struggle in the wild. You would want some kind of meaning in life. So I think that like, a lot of the things they're doing just totally make sense. Um, so decide to build a city... Um, where things go poor, though, is where the intention of those actions go. Um, so in verse 3 of 11, it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us bake bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. Um, so the intention comes down. So what is the intention of building the tower? So you have the city, and that makes sense. What is the intention of building the tower? Um, and I think it's helpful to understand what it is that they're building. Um, most likely, the people of Babylon are building what is referred to as a ziggurat. Um, and here is an image of the ziggurat at Babylon, or our reconstruction of the ziggurat at Babylon. Uh, and ziggurats in the ancient world have very specific functions. They're not just tall towers. They're not just cool um, buildings that everybody can look at. <laughs> and some of the ancient ziggurats throughout the world give us a clue as what they are. So the ziggurat at Babel, and this one right here, is roughly translated to be temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. Um, the ziggurat at Larsa is translated this way, temple which links heaven and earth and another, um, Sapor, temple of the stairway to pure heaven. What do those names reveal about this facility? What they think might happen with this facility or the intentions of this facility? What were the names again? Sorry. Oh, you're good. Um, <laughs> trying to connect heaven to earth. 
Totally. Yes. So yeah, hold that idea. Totally. Um, so there was temple of the foundation of heaven and earth, temple which links heaven and earth, and temple of stairway to pure heaven. Yeah, that's totally right. So we've said over and over again that what we think is a big part of the problem of the Genesis, of what happened in Genesis 3 is that the spaces of our domain and God's domain are divided. So here's earth, here's heaven. And a ziggurat's intention is that if you build a tower, you might be able to link the spaces. Here's like a little home, be like staircases. And then down here would be your temple. So the gods would have a place. That's a ziggurat. Um, uh, totally looks like it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> this is heaven. So there was a way for the gods to come from their place down to your place, and then they would dwell in your temple because that's what you want. You want some way to unite the spaces, to bring back the goodness, the righteousness, the justice of God's domain and bring it into your own. It's an attempt to unite the spaces. Um, they're trying to manufacture rescue, which I think sounds weird when we look at it like this, but it's really like, at the end of the day, it's, we do the exact same thing every time we use our own works or achievement to get to God. We do the same thing every time we think that some kind of cultural invention will save us or rescue us. This is exactly what they're doing. Like, they believe that this cultural project will rescue or save them. So every time that we think some invention will clear the... Um, atmosphere of all greenhouse gases we're i think kind of doing this i think it 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 it, it, it aches to an act of desperation totally you know what i mean like they're, they're not sure what to do like god are you here so mm-hmm. we build this this tower no totally mm-hmm. i totally agree yeah yeah and i think like just like that we see it happening all the time in our own world it's you know Obviously, like, the understanding of the universe is a bit more primitive in that sense, but it totally makes sense as like a, a way in which you think you can fix the world around you. We always think cultural projects will fix us, or technology will fix us, or our works or our achievements will fix us. That's exactly what they think. Um, the problem, really, is that it is the same sin that we've seen in Genesis 6 with the flood, and it's the same sin that we saw in Genesis 3. Um, it is a attempt to transcend creatureliness, um, to be independent of God, that we don't actually need God to rescue us because we can do it on our own. Um, And it's self-exaltation, which it was in Genesis 3, that we're going to make a name for ourselves. Um, A scholar, Andy Crouch, I think says a really helpful quote on this. He says, The city of Babel amounts to a massive declaration of independence from God a defiantly human effort to deal with the world and all its wonder and terror, to put distance between humans and God and all his wonder and terror. And I think God intervenes in this moment just by spreading them out. Um, Not because I think he's worried of a rival, because I think we've already seen what happens when um, people wield power outside of God's responsibility. Um, Like, for, for example, cities are amazing... If we look at Genesis 1.28, we say, okay, God is commissioning humans to advance culture. Well, cities, in one sense, are a really beautiful example of that because they can be places of human flourishing. They can be places of safety and security. They can be places of, um, well, yeah, life and light. But at the same time, cities, when humans are wielding power for the sake of self-gain, can be places of intense exploitation. Um, I just think about New York City in 1880. That's when um, 
um, Jacob Reese does the photographic essay, um, How the Other Half Lives, and he just photographs um, what it was like to live in New York slums. And there's like 15,000 tenements and almost 2 million people trying to live in them. You're just like, oh, this is what it looks like when um, exploitation happens because the only jobs are in the city, but there's no one to care for those people. Um, so I think God intervenes because he understands what can happen when we exalt ourselves, wield power, uh, people get hurt. Um, so there's one big idea about Babel that I think is important before we move on. It's that it's weird that we translate Babel, Babel, um, because that's the Hebrew name for the place. The way we're going to translate this the rest of the time in Scripture is Babylon. Um, and that's important because Babylon, throughout the narrative, will remain an antagonist to God's work and his way. Um, so you'll see it very specifically with Israel. Like they will be a, the actual people of Babylon will be an enemy of God's working. But then as, even as we go into like the book of Revelation, God will often refer to the opposition to his kingdom as being the kingdom of Babylon. And so it's always this kind of like that. This will be the reference to like what stands opposed to God's working in the world. What stands opposed to him um, uniting the space. What stands opposed to him bringing justice. It will always be a reference to Babylon, um, which is the first reference we get to um, Babylon. Um, okay, so now at the end of Genesis 11, we have um, a tricky situation on our hand. Um, I just think this quote really well sums it up. It's a bit long, but it's totally worth it. Um, this is the author of C.H. Wright, and he says this, Everything is tragically adrift from, original, from the original goodness of God's purpose. The earth lies under the sentence of God's curse because of human sin. Human beings are adding to their catalog of evil as the generations roll past. Women enjoy the gift of childbirth along with suffering and pain. Men find fulfillment in subduing the earth, but with sweat and frustration. Both enjoy sexual complementarity and intimacy, but along with lust and domination. Technology and cultural are advancing, but the skills that can grab instruments from music and agriculture can also forge weapons of violent death. Nations experience the richness of ethnic, linguistic, and geographical diversity, along with confusion, scattering, and strife. And so we have, at the end of Genesis 11, these really huge... Oh, Questions um, about the world. The earth is divided from heaven. Humans have rejected God and his ways. Um, and so we have this question, like, what will put those things right? What will fix the universe as it is? Because Genesis 1 through 11 is the large and broad cosmic problem that's now set into the world. Um, what would they do? Um, death must be destroyed, because we've seen that's a reality. Sin and strife and the striving of nations must be dealt with. The suffering of the entire created order must be put right. And God must restore his presence and unite the spaces. Um, and in that moment is when the rescue mission of the rest of scripture begins. Um, now that we have the plot thoroughly thick from uh, <laughs> three weeks of Genesis 1 through 11. Um, any questions? Great. Um, so just before we go, so this is what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm just going to redraw this picture I drew. It's nice. So here's Eden, uh, the beginning of the story. Genesis 1 through 11 is this downward spiral of human sin. And then next week we'll begin the subplot of God's rescue mission to save the world. And Genesis 12 is when God calls Abram into relationship with himself. And he gives him this very specific blessing. And he says, hey, Abram, through you, 
I'm going to bless the entire world. And Paul, the apostle, will later call that moment in Galatians the gospel in advance. Yet this is where God's good news, his good workings are beginning in the world. And as you track his story along, you have um, you know, the patriarchs, their story, Isaac, um, Jacob. You have Egypt, the plagues. Um, and then we'll come to um, God rescues Israel. This is the thundercloud. That's lightning. Um, <laughs> um, you come to Exodus 19. And he's at the mountain. Yeah, this is the Mount Sinai. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Snow. Um, you come to Exodus 19. So you track his story. You come to Exodus 19. Now there's a people of Israel because you've progressed the story. And God will look at his people and say, hey, remember the promise that I gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? I am going to bless you. And you will bless the world by being to me a people of a holy nation, a people of priests. Um, And then from that moment, he gives them Torah. And we get what does it look like for the people of Israel to begin to bless the world um, as God's specific people, Uh, which then rolls into the kings and rolls into their suckiness of that whole story. Um, But that'll be next week. Um, Dang it. So I still was pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah. Um, we're only three weeks behind. Um, <laughs> killing it. Um, yeah. So the problem has been set, and then now we get to look at yeah, mostly positive things from here on out. You know, at least like moving the forward in a forward direction. Now that the plot's been been set, and uh, we know what's going wrong. Um, cool. <laughs>